Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Is Shakespeare's Macbeth a tragic hero whose death evokes pity and regret? Or does the death of this killer merely bring satisfaction? At the end of the play, the newly crowned King Malcolm certainly wants his audience of Scottish thanes to feel satisfied at the fate of this dead butcher, as he calls Macbeth. But do we see Macbeth as a butcher? In this episode, we'll delve deeper into the complexities of Macbeth's character with the help of Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Oxford. There's an attempt to sort of dehumanise Macbeth by the description of him and also by bringing on his head. But I think that the audience who have been through the play with Macbeth and, and with Lady Macbeth probably aren't completely aligned with Malcolm at that point. But why aren't we aligned with Malcolm? All the terrible portents that fill Scotland after Duncan's death, from sickness to the darkening of the sun surely indicate the evil of Macbeth's reign. And Malcolm returns to Scotland from England, which associates him with the blessed English king, who, he says, cures the sick with heavenly powers. But those touch points of good and evil aren't the only things that frame our response to the play. And the theatre does allow us, I mean, is, is, a, is a way, is a place where we can... In- investigate our ethical positions or our moral positions, but it also is a way of bypassing them in in favour of a different set of values, which is to do with entertainment and, you know, vicariously doing the wrong thing or imagining what it would be like uh, to step outside the, 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 the moral boundaries that we have all the rest of the time. With Macbeth, Shakespeare imagines violating the most absolute moral boundaries you could imagine. Killing your king killing your family, killing your closest friend, and killing a child. And so Shakespeare almost sets himself a challenge as an artist. How can you depict someone committing the most inhumane crimes imaginable and still show him as human? You do it by getting close to him. The play does present us with a character who seems absolutely good, King Duncan, whose virtues, says Macbeth, will plead like angels trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off. And yet, we don't really sympathise with Duncan because the play doesn't bring us close to him. It puts us at a distance from from that character and we're at a distance from Duncan. We don't share his view of the world. By contrast, the play keeps us close to Macbeth the whole time. We hear his most intimate thoughts in his speeches and soliloquies. We see the world through his eyes. But what I really think is fascinating about that is that Shakespeare, Shakespeare's response to the gunpowder plot is really to think, what would it be like to have killed the king? It, he isn't sort of casting blame. He isn't making the 
uh, the, the regicide, the, the king killer into a, a sort of demon or a monster or something that you can't understand. He wants to try and get inside their head and see what it's like to be them. And it's quite hard to, um, it's quite hard to demonize or to be absolutely black and white about somebody who you've been alongside or you know really well. If you're up close with people, you're inside their mind, it's 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 a bit a little bit harder to judge, maybe, to, to to be judgmental. And I think that's what Shakespeare gives us. Shakespeare shows us how Macbeth responds to a whole host of different characters. Duncan, Banquo, the witches, Lady Macbeth, the physician. Each of these interactions reveals more about his character and situation. When Lady Macbeth is troubled by dark memories in her sleep, Macbeth asks her physician, Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased, pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow that weighs upon the heart? We sense here that he's talking about himself as much as his wife. And, of course, we see Macbeth on stage alone, bearing the innermost thoughts of his mind. And what we see isn't a demon... It's a man whose demons haunt him. He hears voices, he sees ghosts, and his own thoughts seem to turn against him. Oh, full of scorpions is my mind, he says to his wife after Duncan is dead. After the first murder, Shakespeare doesn't allow Macbeth a moment's peace. He gives us a Macbeth who is never comfortable in what he has done, never... Um, uh, self-congratulatory, always anxious, haunted, um, worried, uh, desperately trying to run to stand still. Uh, that there is something, there is a pathos about that, a real pathos uh, about it. That pathos, that sense of pity or sadness that the audience feels for Macbeth, comes across most clearly near the end of the play. Shortly before he dies, Macbeth has a poignant awareness of the good things he has lost. Comparing his life to a withered leaf, he says, That which should accompany old age as honour, love, obedience, troops of friends, I must not look to have. It's the fate of the tragic hero or the tragic protagonist to be alone, whereas it's the fate of the comic protagonist to be joined in with, with society. So... Um, and and when, when Macbeth's pretty much alone in the castle, as Malcolm's army uh, carries the wood from from Burnham towards him, he, he talks about what he had hoped to have. It's a very moving line about what, what he thought old age would bring. And he, he's got this line, troops of friends. And the troops are obviously actually the troops of hostile soldiers uh, coming to take his his position away from him. A striking, tragic irony about this speech is that Macbeth had had a kind of love that isn't found anywhere else in Shakespeare. Macbeth is one of the few characters in Shakespeare whose marriage we get to see. And in some ways, it's a very supportive and equitable marriage. Some of the powerful ways I think Shakespeare shows the relationship between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth in the early uh, at the end of Act One and in Act Act Two, is as real uh, equals, uh, kind of coevals in 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 this 
uh, in this plot. Uh, and that's a very uh, striking feature of the way he understands the relationship. My dearest partner of greatness, he calls her. Uh, and one uncomfortable element of the of the play, I suppose, is that this uh, this is the most equal relationship, uh, marital relationship, relationship between men and women that perhaps the plays uh, ever depict. Some critics interpret the power dynamic in this relationship as very unequal, with Lady Macbeth bullying and shaming her husband into terrible crimes he didn't really want to commit. So there's there's a, a way of seeing Lady Macbeth as the the the, the power behind the throne, the, the person who really forces Macbeth into an action that he otherwise wouldn't have taken. But there's another way of seeing Lady Macbeth. When the couple discuss Duncan's murder, it looks as though Lady Macbeth is the one embracing the idea and Macbeth is only raising objections. But Lady Macbeth may be sensing what her husband is thinking and not saying and encouraging those unspoken thoughts in exactly the way Macbeth wants them encouraged. And, after all, it is ultimately Macbeth's greatness that she supports. She never says she wants to be queen herself. And I sort of really encourage people to do that and to look at the way they've been presented in performance. Because one of one alternative, I think, is that they show a couple who are very, uh, very intuitively able to uh, switch roles, to back each other up when needed, to express weakness and to have it um, reassured. But it's a kind of interesting way to push back against the other reading, which I think is the reading which has given rise to really misogynistic ideas about Lady Macbeth, that she is more bloodthirsty, more culpable than her husband, uh, and that somehow you know she, she is the great sort of mythic, monstrous woman that, that emerges from the play. I don't really see her like that. And it's hard to argue that it's only Lady Macbeth's ambition and cruelty that propel Macbeth into crime when he commits all his later crimes without her knowledge or help. In fact, he deliberately distances himself from her as the play goes on, and that may be the root of her tragedy. But it's an interesting question in that scene whether Lady Macbeth is, is as is often said, broken by guilt about the murder of Duncan, or whether she isn't also broken by grief at the loss of her husband. So it's not that she can't cope with her role at his side and and encouraging him, it's that she can't cope without it. Of course, the play is also dominated by the Macbeth's sense of guilt and horror over their crimes. The effect of guilt and grief is a central theme of the play. As we mentioned in the first episode, Macbeth isn't about the long train of decisions leading up to an event. It's about the long train of consequences afterwards. And Shakespeare depicts those consequences at every level of the play, from the largest structures of plot to the very smallest of words. When Macbeth gives his first extended speech about the possibility of killing Duncan... He doesn't talk about the killing of my kinsman or the murder of the king. He talks about it. If it were done when tis done, then twere well, it were done quickly. 
Likewise, Lady Macbeth tells us that her husband is on his way to murder the king by saying, he is about it, meaning he's going about it, he's doing it. After the murder, Macbeth refuses to go back to Duncan's chamber to return the bloody daggers, as Lady Macbeth demands, because, he says, Le Conte again, I dare not. Both Macbeth and Lady Macbeth plead that their crime will be hidden from heaven. And their language is a way of hiding it from themselves, refusing to name it, refusing to think about it, so that guilt will not overpower them with the horror of what they have done. They also constantly use the words done and deed to refer to the murder. The repetition of these words seems to perform on a micro level the larger themes of equivocation and guilt that animate the play. It's as if these actions, these done deeds, will somehow be absolved of their bloody horror if they are not named or described. And that sense that, I think it's a really good sort of tip about Shakespeare more generally, that that often the larger themes of the play that we see in the interaction between characters or the, the way the plot works, often we can really sort of bring those, focus those right back down on the way adjectives and nouns work or the way the syntax of lines work. Um, and, and so we can get the sense that the play is aligned from its smallest details to its largest kind of structure. One one of the words we keep getting in its different forms is do, done, deed. That's as characters, particularly Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, try to suppress thought, I guess, into action and say all that matters is what we do. It's it's the um, it's the lexical equivalent. It's the verbal equivalent of Lady Macbeth says uh, when Lady Macbeth says a little water clears us of this deed. She says, you know, the deed, the deed, deed is the word there. But uh, she's saying uh, we just need to do something practical, and and it's fine. Stop thinking about it. Stop, you know, st- stop going on about it. And there's an attempt to do that um, throughout with this the, this kind of emphasis, and and I guess the, the that's related to the. Um, the absence of nouns and the and the substitution of pronouns where where nouns have not been specified. Um, there's a moment when the witches ask each other, "What is to you do a deed without a name?" And that deed without a name feels as if it's the uh, it governs a lot of the language of the play. It can't it can't be spoken. Words can't be spoken to describe uh, the murder of Duncan. Uh, language is sort of inadequate to uh, to approach what's what's happening. Macbeth can't say to himself what he's doing. Which brings us to a central mystery of the play. If Macbeth is so horrified at the idea of killing the king that he can't even name the act, how does he actually do it? Why people do things, what makes things happen is one of the larger questions that the play asks. One of the dominant questions it raises for me is a question about why things happen. Why, 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 do, why do things work out the way they do? Or why do people commit certain kinds of actions? So it's really interested in things we're still interested in. The question of evil, is there, you know, is there such a thing as evil? Uh, do people do bad things for contextual reasons? Are they persuaded by other people? Uh, Do they do bad things for the right reasons? Those kind of moral, ethical questions I think are really pressing in Macbeth. 
One way of understanding tragic action is through the notion of the tragic flaw, an idea drawn from the Greek philosopher Aristotle. He said that the hero of a tragedy often makes one error of judgment with far-reaching consequences that lead to his downfall. Some critics see this fatal action less as a simple mistake and more as evidence of some deeper fault in their character. I think we've become used to an idea of the tragic hero in Shakespeare, which is perhaps a little bit of a stereotype. And and the stereotype probably goes something like this. The tragic hero is a basically decent person who has one flaw and that flaw somehow trips him up and he ends up doing something that's really bad, but probably hurts him as much as anybody else. And that's pretty a sad, a kind of sad decline from somebody who's seemed as if they were in other circumstances could have been kind of good people having having a good life. I'm not completely sure that that's ever relevant. It's certainly not relevant here. What makes this model inadequate for understanding Macbeth is that the play depicts many different sources of agency, many different kinds of forces at work in the world that could be causing things to happen. And that makes it hard to say exactly what does cause them. It starts with the witches, so they look as if they precede everything else that's happening or oversee everything that's happening. But the witches kind of disappear. We don't get them back at the end. It's a striking feature of uh, major productions uh, on film and in the theatre that they very often feel that they want to bring the witches back at the end to finish things off, either with the suggestion the witches are still around and therefore some notion of evil or uh, wickedness is still pr- is still there to attach itself to weak or ambitious people. Or to say the witches have done their work. Why Shakespeare doesn't bring them back, I think, is, uh, it is a really interesting question. I think Shakespeare is asking the question about whether these witches are material in what happens. Do they they simply know what's going to happen? Do they make things happen? So so one one aspect of the question of agency in the play, I think, is the question about the witches. The other is the the question about Lady Macbeth. Would Macbeth have done this without Lady Macbeth? So so does does Lady Macbeth make him do something that... um, that, that he wouldn't otherwise otherwise have done, and how far is this uh, how far is this a, a, an aspect of Macbeth himself? I, th- I think when Macbeth uses in his in his first soliloquy the idea of vaulting vaulting ambition, um, that that certainly is a part. Perhaps that's obviously a part of his initial motivation, but it doesn't really seem to explain. It's not sufficient sort of psychologically or situationally perhaps to explain what happens uh, after that. I think my take on this play is that it really embodies the qualities I most value about about Shakespeare's drama. I think it's a really interrogative play. So I think it asks loads of questions. I think it asks the question, would Macbeth have done this without the witches? Would he have done this without Lady Macbeth? Um, I think it. I think it wants us to uh, think about how far we 
understand human agency to be at the centre of the world, how far we think we are sort of puppeted or influenced by things outside ourselves. Uh, I, I think, uh, so, so the, 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 the takes on the play, which are very sure about um, answers to those questions, I feel sceptical about. I don't, I don't think that for me is where the power of the play lies. Many of the play's questions arise from the magic of its language. Words, like the witches themselves, are powerful tricksters that both drive actions, but also leave the characters and the audience with many unanswered questions. In the next episode, we'll look closely at some of the key speeches of the play to see how Shakespeare fills his language with such power and mystery. 